0: W living planet
1: The past month has seen summer heat intensify in the northern hemisphere. Wildfires burn from Greece to Algeria to California, and climate scientists admit that even some of these extremes were beyond their predictions. In today's episode, we talk drought, heat and fire and what happens when that collides with mass tourism. We hear from Italians battling water shortages caused by a two-year drought.
2: The situation is very serious. Many water sources in the area have completely or partially dried up.
1: And we ask a sustainable tourism expert what the future looks like for summer holidays in Europe.
3: Tourism is an interesting one because it does contribute a lot to global carbon emissions and of course it's actually quite exposed because tourism happens in places that are probably more vulnerable than others.
1: All that coming up. This is Living Planet. I'm Charlie Shields.
3: We are here the last six days to help uh, in every way we can, but it's very difficult. Uh, The wind is very high today. It will be worst. Wednesday, it's very, very bad.
2: Hell on earth. Um, never thought I'd be caught up in something like that. There's, there's, someone's going to end up dying out there, seriously. There, there are thousands of people that are still out there. There's, there's young kids, there's elderly people. The island's on fire. They've got nowhere to go. There's no food, no water, and they've just basically been abandoned.
1: Those are some voices from residents and tourists visiting the Greek island of Rhodes last week when more than 100 wildfires broke out, sending forests, towns and homes up in flames. And someone did end up dying. Two pilots lost their lives on their way to help put out the fires when their plane crashed on the island of Evia. And at the time of recording, dozens have since died around the Mediterranean due to wildfires. More than 20,000 people were evacuated from the Greek island of Rhodes and thousands more from Corfu and Evia. The fires in Greece emitted the equivalent of burning 500,000 kilograms of coal or 2.3 million barrels of oil, according to the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency's calculations. It was the hottest July in recorded history for the entire planet. Across Earth, all seven continents experienced extraordinary extreme weather events in July. China had its hottest day ever, with temperatures in Turpan City reaching 52.2 degrees Celsius or 126 degrees Fahrenheit. Uruguay is enduring its worst drought in more than 70 years, with temperatures having reached 48 degrees Celsius in parts of the country. And Antarctic sea ice is at an all time record low for this time of year. Scientists say 2023 is likely going to be the hottest year for humanity since records began in the mid 1800s. The UN is calling it the era of global boiling. Not global warming, but global boiling. Speaking to DW, Laura Patterson, a coordinator to the UN from the World Meteorological Organization, explains the link between these extreme weather events and a higher global average temperature on Earth.
4: As the average um, temperatures go up, um, it means that you're basically just moving up the baseline. So the most extreme um, hot weather that we ever used to expect is now becoming sort of more, you know, more frequent. And the highest peak of temperatures that we can expect is now higher than it used to be.
1: And with hot weather comes a whole host of other climate extremes, Laura explains.
4: The increase in in temperature also means that the atmosphere can hold more water, so we can expect to see increased levels of flooding as well. The heat also obviously exacerbates drought.
1: While the exact impacts rising temperatures have on weather systems can be complex and difficult to predict, the cause of climate change is very clear, Laura says. Carbon emissions released into the atmosphere by burning fossil fuels.
4: We're definitely not on the trajectory that we need to be. Countries have agreed to go on a certain path and we're really, you know, we're not following that path at all. We are continuing to increase the concentrations of greenhouse gases, you know, year on year. And as a result, we're seeing the, the planet warming um, as, as to be expected, but that's not to mean that it's not worrying. You know, as, as scientists have been calling for for many years, this is really concerning and it is continuing to happen unabated.
1: Laura Patterson from the World Meteorological Organization speaking there. And one European country that's both a major tourist destination and especially vulnerable to climate change is Italy. During July, more than 20 cities in Italy, including Rome, Bologna and Florence, were under red alert due to extreme heat. And although storms have since broken out in the north of Italy in the past two weeks, for the better part of the past two years, this part of the country has been ravaged by a persistent drought. Apart from these occasional intense downpours, rainfall has become unusually scarce, and it hasn't been snowing much in the Alps either. The result is extremely low water levels in the Piedmont and Lombardy regions. In some parts, even the drinking water supply is at risk. Angelo van Schreik brings us more on Italy's drought.
5: It's 8 o'clock in the morning in Cuneo and a water truck is being filled up at the city's fire department. It takes about 15 minutes to fill it with 8,000 litres. Andrea is responsible for the job and taking this precious commodity to places where it's needed. Uh, Camoliere is one of 10 municipalities in this province of northwestern Italy that's without water. Mainly small villages in the mountains on the border between Italy and France. The provincial water company Agda drives into the mountains every day to refill the reservoirs in these villages. It's a 45 minute drive. The area is facing a critical situation, says Fabio Monaco. He is responsible for the planning and maintenance of the drinking water supply
2: system here. The situation is very serious. Many villages have been affected by the water crisis. Many water sources in the area have completely or partially dried up. So we now have to supply water to some of these villages, which is not normal. The mountains used to provide the water for the plain. Now the plain must provide the mountains with water.
5: The countryside we drive through is mainly flat with vineyards and grain fields. A bit further in the distance are the so-called Cunian Alps. Although some of its peaks are over 3,000 metres high, there's very little snow. Too little, says Andrea. This is not normal. At the end of March, beginning of April, there should be three or four times as much snow at 2,000 or 2,500 metres. There are places at 3,000 metres where there isn't even 30 centimetres of snow. That's the heart of the problem. It doesn't snow in winter, so there's no melting water in spring, and it doesn't rain in spring or summer. And this has been going on for more than two years now. There's a very real risk that there will be no water coming out of taps here this summer, says Fabio Monaco of the ACTA Water Supply Company.
2: In fact, this is already the case in some villages. The springs have died up to such an extent that if we didn't go into the mountains with water tanks, those villages would be without water. And if the rain doesn't come, it's inevitable that more and more villages will depend on water trucks. Restrictions on the use of
5: water have already been in place in most of this area's municipalities since last summer. Tap water may only be used for drinking, showering and cooking. Washing your car or filling up your swimming pool is prohibited. Gino is preparing his hotel restaurant in De Monte, just outside Cuneo. He also has a swimming pool, but it's empty. Last summer, the mayor banned the use of tap water
0: to fill swimming pools, so mine was closed. I lost a lot of money because tourists
5: decided not to come to my hotel. After a 45-minute drive on narrow mountain roads, we reach Camolieres, a handful of houses attached to a mountain ridge. Andrea attaches the water hose to a pump to fill up the water reservoir. In the meantime, I walk around the tiny village, where I run into Daniele. There's no water in the village, though there's no need to ration it yet because there are only a few people living here. There's a small well in the village, but it's almost completely dried up because it's hardly rained for two years. Over the past few years, rain and snow have almost completely disappeared from this part of Italy. So how much rain would you need to return to water levels, to what they were before this crisis? Fabio Monaco of the water supply company Agda.
2: According to this region's environment department, 55 days of continuous rain are needed to bring the groundwater back to the same level as before the crisis. That means rain every day for two months in a row. That's the best way of explaining how serious the situation is.
5: Andrea has finished filling up the water reservoir in Camoglières, But there are many other villages to visit. Rivers are running dry and agriculture, the supply of hydroelectricity and tourism are at risk. The Italian government is investing almost 8 billion euros to fight the drought. Hopefully there will be enough to avoid water taps from running dry for millions of Italians. Angelo van Schaik, DW. Cunio, Italy.
1: And just a reminder if you'd like to reach out to us, you can always email us at livingplant at dw.com. We'd also love to hear your feedback on the show, so you can email us about it, or you could leave us a rating and a review on whichever podcast platform you're using. I'm Charlie Shield in Germany. You're listening to DW's Living Planet. As we heard there in that report from Angelo, business owners in Italy, like those across the Mediterranean, are concerned about the impact of extreme weather on their ability to attract tourists. Southern Europe in summer is one of the world's most popular holiday destinations. It attracts millions of tourists every year. In fact, tourism accounts for 10% of the EU's total GDP. In Greece, it makes up one quarter of the GDP, and it provides one in five jobs. But the Mediterranean is also warming at a faster rate than most of the rest of the world. And it's increasingly becoming unlivable during summer months let alone visitable. But despite the soaring temperatures and dangerous conditions, tourists still flocked to places like Italy and Greece this summer. Mass tourism and climate extremes certainly doesn't seem like a happy marriage. So what's got to change?
3: My name is uh, Susanna Becken. I'm a professor of sustainable tourism at Griffith University in Australia.
1: Susanna Beckman was also a contributing author for the fourth and fifth assessment reports of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the world's foremost authority on global boiling. I spoke to Susanna on the line from her home in New Zealand about the link between going on a holiday and heating up the planet and what needs to change for the better. First, though, this is what she had to say about the severity of the heat waves and the weather extremes we're seeing right now.
3: I just about started to think I mean we, we just don't have time to do more science. We know the science and it's accelerating and, and if you ask the climate scientists that are really working on this deeply they say some of the things we're seeing they, they haven't even been in the models to say, like, Okay, we never actually included these types of scenarios because they seemed so implausible.
1: And Susanna, Europe is clearly a hugely popular destination for tourists from all over the world during summer, especially countries like Spain, Portugal, Italy, Greece. And so far, these higher temperatures that we've been seeing don't seem to have deterred people. But do you think that that's going to change as these summers become hotter and more unbearable and we see horrific events such as these wildfires?
3: I, I do think, and a little bit of change has happened, but I think, and look, I grew up in Germany myself, and my dad always had this funny saying. He said, my car only drives south. Like, you could not get him to go on a holiday north. It would only be south. And I think, you know, we're we hardwired to go to Italy, Spain, Greece. That's just, it's just a summer holiday and, and exactly in search for warmer temperatures. And then it has actually, I mean, I when I started this research, said, 20 years ago so we did look at some of these patterns and say okay people might start to think you know avoid august and it has happened that the the shoulder seasons are becoming more popular Um, but august is still busy as we see i mean it's just because of the overall growth of tourism but you know it's been summer after summer where it started to get quite hot in places just that this year really tops it so i think people will start to think especially when you have maybe vulnerable people you know, elderly or with children. Do you want to do that? Maybe, maybe the car has to drive north. You know, and and there has been a bit of an uptick in, in holidays. Uh, you know, in in the north of Germany or Denmark. So, so I do think the the scenes that we are seeing now, it's going beyond just a bit of discomfort. It's really when potentially your life is at risk. That that's a different matter.
1: And are European countries especially those in the Mediterranean, which are warming at a faster rate than most of the rest of the world, are they doing anything special to protect tourists from extreme heat or to mitigate the impact on tourism infrastructure?
3: So, I mean, there have been some that have tried to, you know, diversify away from the beach tourism, of course, have special offers. I mean, Mallorca, for example, of course, very popular with with, um, cycling tourists you know in spring or autumn um there's quite a bit of effort going into sort of food tourism agricultural tourism but they're sort of more the niche markets at this point and the mass tourism is still that classic summer um, product um i think my my main concern is also just that how risk management and, and disaster response which which is not there in fact in most countries um tourism is a kind of positive happy industry it's always been a struggle and and i've done some research on that on trying to sort of get more risk and disaster management into tourism and contingency planning and and of course it costs money and the system itself works on efficiency and price you know the classic saturday in saturday out it's all very tight um you know once you start building in or you even say well we've got a limit a carrying capacity on the island, we can't take more than X people, well, then the price will go up. And I think going forward, um, that's something that the tourism industry has to consider a little bit more. Right.
1: And I suppose the argument against raising prices on transport and accommodation and food and all the rest of it would be that that could price out people on lower incomes and therefore only be accessible to people who are earning more money.
3: That is true, and that's often the argument, but people always joke that, for example, the taxi to the airport costs you more than the flight, or the pizza at the airport costs you just about more than the flight. So... so Some parts of tourism have just become incredibly cheap. So that people now do multiple holidays a year, whereas, you know, way back where you might have had one holiday or, you know, you might take the car, pack the whole family and go camping. So we have become used to a model where, yeah, you can just fly multiple times a year somewhere. It is quite cheap. It's quite affordable. And all of a sudden it's maybe not. um, Because the one thing we haven't talked about is once you add the cost of carbon... Of course, it goes up even more and it's only quite a recent phenomenon that, I mean, one can look at the economic data and how much um, in real terms, in fact, airfares have gone down.
1: And what would the cost of carbon be for something like air travel?
3: So I guess this depends um, and how long is a piece of string, as we say, it depends what price you put on carbon. Scientists have calculated, so it could be anything from $20 a tonne of carbon to a 1,000, really. Some of these carbon offsetting programs that are obviously, there's a whole range of issues. Some of them are so cheap, you know, maybe $15, 20 So that doesn't really make much of a dent. But if, if airlines are start starting to, well, either voluntarily or in a mandatory form, start to price the emissions... And replace the the fossil fuel, then airfares will go up quite significantly
1: mm-hmm. and what's the link here between tourism and climate change? Does mass tourism make heat waves worse? What's the relationship here, and how should people understand it?
3: The problem is with climate change is that it's it's a global problem, and it's quite easy to say, "Oh well, my activity you know I might fly to to Greece for that matter, and that won't make much difference." It's just well if everyone did change it would make a difference and so tourism is an interesting one because it does contribute a lot to global carbon emissions and of course it's actually quite exposed because tourism happens in places that are probably more vulnerable than others so if you think beaches so coastal tourism cities particularly hot some of the environments um, for example coral reefs you know the the predictions are they will not last beyond, I mean, 2030, 2050 snow tourism, I mean, I think the house ski industry. Um, So, so a lot of tourism is actually quite at risk from climate change. Yet the way in the moment it's, it's organized, it it is quite high carbon because of the transport component and flying. So I guess if you were truly thinking of doing your bit and and think about, okay, what's my next holiday? I mean, ideally you wouldn't fly um, and you would maybe also think a little bit about the risks any particular storm season hurricane season yeah like for example i probably wouldn't go to a greek island in august to be honest obviously it's very difficult when it's put in front of you and hard to make those decisions
1: Mm -hmm. and what can the tourism sector do to reduce its carbon footprint and lessen its negative impact on the environment
3: so, yeah, there's a whole bunch of things that can be done and and some do them, but many don't. It's on the sustainability front, um, obviously saving energy where possible. And I think, for example, the prices, the energy cost has definitely helped that along. Um, but there's still a lot of inefficiency in, in hotels in particular. And some of that can involve the guests as well. So it's not just about changing light bulbs and maybe having you know different air conditioners but it's actually really working with the guests and say hey you know these are some things that you can do and the hotel could make available bicycles for free for example Um, they can put uh, bus timetables in the hotel room so there's a lot of things that can be done in fact almost with uh, enhancing the experience so not like oh you must not do this and you must not do that but for example local local food you know, here's some fresh fresh produce from, from the local surroundings. Here's these things you can do. So, so there's a lot of potential that actually is quite unexplored. Um, same around water efficiency. And then I guess on the safety side, um, again, maybe thinking about, well, definitely having some disaster plans in place. Um, not all businesses do. You know, what do I do? How do I mean, there's some basic stuff that you need for compliance to evacuate your guests, but really looking at the weather forecast. Having good communication with the visitors, starting to really think about your property, um, shade, green space, you know, maybe those water features. So it's not just about providing a bed.
1: I was in Rome in early June and I was really struck by the lack of greenery and shade. It seemed like there were barely any trees or shelters to take respite under. And it was so hot and overwhelming. So it's hard to imagine what it's like now during these peak summer months.
3: Absolutely. And I think I I do think many cities are starting to realise that, you know, needing that sort of green space. Um, And that's not just for the heat, but even the the flash flood. I mean, we had it in Auckland um, earlier in the year. It was just phenomenal flooding. And so now the, the the new word is sort of the sponge city that soaks up the water. We've built the cities in ways said it's typically sort of four degrees warmer in a city than around it. And it becomes just inhospitable for people. I've seen the images from, from Rome um, and um, Acropolis and Athens. And for some, it's it's probably a serious health risk.
1: Susanna Becken, thank you so much for your time and for joining us on Living Planet today.
3: Right, thanks for having me.
1: Turkey has also long been a popular holiday destination in summer. But this year, things might already be starting to turn. So far, some cities are not seeing nearly as many tourists as they normally would at this time of year. On the eastern fringes of the Mediterranean, a wildfire at a seaside resort in Antalya province of Turkey saw over 1,000 people evacuated last week. A few kilometres up the road, the old town of Antalya city seems deserted. Elliot Douglas has more with reporting from Diala Lang.:
0: The heat hangs heavy in the air. The narrow streets, where tourists usually stroll, are deserted. It's high season in Antalya, but you'd never know it here in the old town. The sun beats down on the cobblestones. Reyyan, a young woman in a white T-shirt and shorts, sits in the shade in front of her small store, a large bottle of water on the table next to her. Even though hardly any tourists come by on such blisteringly hot days, she and her business partner still open the store every morning.
2: We're waiting.
1: Not many people come, but a few do. So we're open for them. Some stroll by in the morning at eight before going to the sea. For them, we are here. Even if
3: it's hot, we wait.
0: And so they wait all day long. Siestas are not part of the local culture here. Rehan has found her own strategy for coping when temperatures in the shade reach 40 degrees Celsius or 104
1: degrees Fahrenheit. If I keep complaining about the temperatures and the heat, it doesn't make time go any quicker. And then I find all I do is complain. That's why, yes, it's very hot, but I'm pretending it's normal weather.
0: Almost every one of the small houses here in the old town has a store on the first floor carpet dealers, souvenir stores, custom tailors. And like Rehan, they are all open despite the heat, waiting for customers. Mahmoud, too, has set up his wares outside. He sells jewellery, summer clothes, towels. Bags in bright colours hang on the stone wall opposite his store. For the people who visit Antalya, it is very difficult. We are used to it by now. We have no other choice because we work here. We have no choice. We have to endure it. But even though he is used to very high temperatures, this year feels different, he says.
2: I have lived in Antalya
0: for 30 years and I have never experienced heat like this. It's very hot. Mahmoud's observation is confirmed by the Turkish Weather Service. It is far hotter than usual at this time of year. 5 to 10 degrees Celsius more or 40 to 50 degrees Fahrenheit more, according to the Authority for the South of Turkey. Those who can stay in cool, air-conditioned rooms during the day. Working as a taxi driver here in Antalya is very hard. The working hours are long, and many don't have a single day off during the week. But in the heat, the job has one distinct advantage. Most of the cars have air-conditioning. For that, cab driver Murat is very grateful. It is very hot. May God help those who have to work outside, he says.
2: The local government has
0: issued a health warning, distributed on social media, advising the elderly, children and people with chronic health issues to stay indoors between 11 a.m. and 4 p.m. Back in the city center, it's now slowly getting dark and the old town is gradually filling up. It is still hot, about 30 degrees Celsius, but it's bearable. Tourists are now leaving their hotel pools and the beach to venture into the old town, like Adelina and Mehmet from Lake Constance in southern Germany. They booked a hotel right at the sea and say they only go into the town in the evening because during the day, the heat makes it intolerable but Adelina says that even the sea while pleasant at first begins to feel warmer the longer you stay in it
1: Elliot Douglas presenting that report from Dayala Lang And that brings us to an end of this week's episode of Living Planet. Thank you so much for listening. Living Planet is a DW Studios production coming to you out of Germany. As well as broadcast on radio stations all around the world, we're available on all podcast platforms. So a reminder to hit subscribe there to get a new episode every week and to leave us a rating and a review. This episode was mixed by Jonas Jorsten, Bibke Tegdmeier, and produced by Elliot Douglas and me, Charlie Shield. We'll be back next week with more environment stories from around the world.